0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News.
1: Hi, I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor in chief. Welcome to This Is Working, the podcast, where my colleague Nina Melendez and I discuss a conversation I had on my video series, This Is Working. Nina and I take that conversation, we dissect it, and we extract our top takeaways for you, the listener. Today, we are talking about the value of the MBA, about whether we should be scared of AI when we think about our careers, and whether companies can ever be empathetic. So here's Nina now. Hey, Nina.
0: Hey, Dan. Dan, I've got a fact for you, ready? According to the Graduate Management Admissions Council, the average starting salary for an MBA graduate was 53% higher than the average for people who only have a bachelor's degree. Wow. Now, this is from 2022, but I imagine it hasn't changed all that much. Right. So, like, let's say if you've got a bachelor's degree, your first job, you're starting off at 75 k If you had gotten an MBA, it would probably be 115 k And if you'd gone to the top-ranked MBA programs, you could earn even more... Probably around 200000 and up.
1: So basically, if you are in a job and you don't feel like you were making enough, the math makes it pretty easy to say, I should just go get my MBA. You can sort of model it out pretty quickly on how much more you'll make at the end.
0: Yeah. Or just knowing that if you get your MBA, you're going to be starting off making a little bit of bank.
1: Yep. Well, we just published our first MBA list. So a ranking of the top MBAs that just uses data, not on salary, but on career progress. In the spring, we had a report that looked at what is the impact of getting an MBA. I have to tell you, I was very skeptical Mm -hmm. that the data would show us it was valuable at all. Mm -hmm. I was totally wrong. Hmm. The data showed that you can actually get a jump in your career, that you move up faster with an MBA. And once I saw that data, and we published this in the spring, we'll put this in the in the show notes, as a link to it. I was like, we got to get an MBA list. Let's find out if this data is right, we should have a list of what are the top schools mm. to go to because the ROI is there. So let's figure out now how you can make a decision on where you want to go. And our rankings are based 100% on data. And it looks at do you have more connections when you leave than you started? Do recruiters come after people who are graduates of that school. Are you connected to people at very high levels in business and a couple other factors? So this is all on the list. And then we're trying to find this way of saying, like, you know, this this is if you want to make these decisions, these are the schools to pick from.
0: Did it talk about preparedness at all? How well those schools prepare you for the workforce?
1: Well, one of the things we looked at was when you left business school? Were you in a job at a higher position than you were before you went to business school? Hmm. And that's a big part of the rankings. So in almost all of these schools, that's happening. You're going in as a junior something or another, and you're leaving as a senior something or another. The other big benefit of going to business school is pivoting. It's a lot of people who say, I was doing X, and now I want to do Y. And we took that into account also. What are the best schools for being able to pivot your career?
0: You know, at one point, I thought I was going to go to business school. Really? When I was working at Bloomberg. Yeah. Because I just loved financial news so much. And I was like, maybe I should get an MBA.
1: Yeah. I tried getting my CFA. That's why way. I didn't want to go get to business school, but I was like, I want to get something. So I started studying for my CFA. And... And I dropped out. Oh, I was not. It's I was hard. Like, I hear it's, really it's hard.
0: incredibly hard.
1: Yeah. And I was like, Why, what am I going to do with this? I don't want to trade. And what am I going to do with a CFA? I'm yeah. not sure if I really need it.
0: But you know what you could do with it, Dan? Is you could put CFA after your name on all of your LinkedIn signatures. That is so true.
1: <laughs> now I wish I had it.
0: So speaking of the top business schools, you spoke with the dean of Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management, Francesca Cornelli. It was a great conversation.
1: Yeah, it was a good conversation. And the reason I want to talk to Francesca was she has a particular focus on something that we don't typically think of for business school, which is empathy. Kellogg's focus or one of their main areas of focus is this idea of building empathetic leaders. And I think that when we typically think of business school, you think about gaining certain hard skills. Kellogg is a little bit different or at least a big part of Kellogg is a little bit different, and they're focused on this idea of how empathetic are you as a leader. That was surprising, and I wanted to understand from Francesca why the school was so focused on that.
0: Before we jump into the empathy part, let's bring up that whole part of like why even get an MBA. So we talked about the kind of money you can make once you graduate, but so many people go into debt getting their MBAs. The programs are very expensive. Yeah, Actually, the median student debt for MBA students is about 41000 between $41,000 to $170,000. So when you talk about whether an MBA is worth it, for sure, Francesca, you know, as the dean, she's an advocate for it, but it was really interesting to hear why she's
2: an advocate for the MBA. Let's take a listen. Obviously, I'm a cheerleader of an MBA. I may have a slightly biased view, but I think an MBA is very important, especially because to focus, I always tell the students when they arrive, I'm not interested in your first job. Of course, you'll get a great job in case they pay and get worried. But it's in your rest of your career, the rest of your life. The impact is long, and especially in a period like we have today with unprecedented change, unprecedented challenges different perspectives, different point of views, people evolve in their career, and maybe they won't need it in the first three years, three years out of the MBA, but they will arrive a point in which they will need to communicate their vision. Or in the middle of the disruption, they will need to find some opportunity. And I always remind them, just because you find an opportunity doesn't mean you can take it. You need to bring people along with you. you whether they they are your team, your family, your boss, your investors. You need to bring people along with you. And whenever I talk to successful alumni of 30, 20, 10 years ago, they always say how that was incredibly important. Looking back, that type of skill was very important. Everything is important, also the technical skills, everything. But that ability, and this is not something that people learn on the job sometimes i say we are preparing students for jobs that don't exist yet and that is if you want the difficult balancing act of business school and business school and the preparation a place like kellogg has been evolving remaining true to its value but really evolving thinking of the future and really i always say what i believe we do is we put seeds in the minds of uh, people And the seeds will generate, and I don't know which one, right? But there will be a point in which that is our mission. That is my belief, what makes me get up in the morning, that one day that will transform that person.
1: So I got to say, the way that Francesca talks about the value of a business school makes the ROI a little bit harder, I think, to measure. She's talking Mm -hmm. about this idea of preparing you for jobs that don't exist yet, feels easier to me if you were like, you're going to get a, a bump in pay in your first job, and you are going to be more senior when you go back into a company that you were already at once you leave this school. But Francesca is saying, like, it might take years before you discover the yeah. value of your MBA. That's a hard thing to model out. But if you think about what you were getting out of business school— It feels like it's a lot of these intangibles. Maybe Mm -hmm. intangible is the wrong word, but it's a lot of things that are not baked into the curriculum. It's Mm -hmm. the friendship and the networking Mm -hmm. and the idea that other people, that you're going to be asking these people for jobs in the future, or you're going to be starting companies with them, or they're going to have answers to problems that you have, or they're going to know suppliers that you can turn to. That feels like the real value of business school, besides just whatever is in the curriculum.
0: You know, we talked about this a little bit, Dan, when we were talking about the value of a college education even. And it was like the value of the college education isn't so much in the courses you take, per se, or the degree you walk away with, but it's in that intangible life that you get to live as a young adult, meeting people that you wouldn't otherwise rub shoulders with, joining clubs, learning how to navigate you know, a schedule, for example. And I think that is maybe part of the value also of an MBA is, Like she said, you're talking to people with different perspectives. You're having to work on huge projects with people you might not agree with, which is exactly how it's going to be when you get into the professional world.
1: Well, I think that this is why I'm not still 100% sold on the value of business school. Mm -hmm. I think that for certain people, it's exactly the right thing. But Mm -hmm. I think that you can get a lot of those experiences and a lot of the network building that you're talking about in your job. But you have to be intentional about it. It's a right. lot harder than going to someplace and being on a beautiful campus in incredible buildings and yeah. having amazing faculty walk you through all this research and learning. I think that if you work at a company where you're surrounded by people who think differently, or if you're a consultant, let's say like I don't know why you'd go to business school if you are a consultant and you're being dropped into companies all the time and you're learning on the backs of the companies that are asking you to consult for them. And I think I would have a hard time justifying getting an MBA if I felt like I was around really smart people and a big set of diverse smart people and able to jump in to a diverse set of problems. And I had managers who were helping me skill up. I guess that's a lot. Now that I say that as a leader, that's 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 kind of a unicorn, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. I guess it is.
0: And then the other thing too, though, is that having the degree makes you a higher earner. Yeah. That you don't, you can't say like when you're trying to negotiate for a higher paycheck in your next job, you can't say, well, I came from a company where I had a lot of managers who supported me. And, you know, that's not going to.
1: But you should be able to. I mean, I feel like you should be able to go into an interview and be like, look, I've done all these 10 things and I've learned all this. And you shouldn't just pay me because I have an MBA. You should pay me because I basically have, have, have lived an MBA.
0: So you got a degree from Northwestern. I did, yeah. Great school, great college, undergrad. Yeah. Would you say that having the Northwestern stamp got you into doors that you wouldn't have gotten through otherwise?
1: That's a tough question. It probably helped me get my—I I think I can say that Northwestern helped me get my first job. Hmm. And I don't think after that the Northwestern stamp— made, you know, I think times have changed from mm-hmm. when I got my first job. But at that point, it was harder to research people. It was unclear exactly what someone was doing. And you wanted that stamp of approval that yep. said, this college gave him. This is a yes. good college. I'm sure he or she learned a lot. So I can trust. Yes. The, the diploma is like a stamp of approval. That's what
0: it is. It's a stamp yeah, of approval. Exactly. And that's what an MBA is. It's a very good stamp of approval. Yeah. Because if you're able to, say, graduate from Columbia with your MBA, there's an automatic assumption. You're smart. You're you know. You're a little bit battle tested. Yeah. yeah.
1: You're like you. You know. I yeah. feel, I feel like an MBA. Maybe a little bit different because it's more focused. Like you're like, well, yeah. if this person comes out instead of having to see whether they have the skills. You can be like Columbia wouldn't right. have graduated this person. They couldn't have left school without X set of skills. Right. You know, I think that however the world has changed since I graduated from school and however these MBAs, whatever world they're going into, it is going to look so different in five years. And that's largely because of AI. And I was very curious to hear from Francesca how they are preparing students to deal with the new world of AI. So here's what she had to say.
2: What we are saying is, yes, the AI is going to be transformational, amazing, but you still need the connection between the technology and the business. What we've observed is there's so many businesses that actually fail in their uh, analytics or AI projects. It's not that the scientists fail, it's that they are not they don't understand how their skills fit into the business. We need so much the people able to do the bridge and that is that's another way of empathy. I always say, you know, that's why we actually want to push that because I feel it takes a certain type of person to respect the fact that the scientist is the expert in the room, is the person at the frontier of the technology. And yet, you have to make them see the business point of view, right? You have to have a dialogue with them. So I feel there's a huge opportunity for people that. Understand the technology, but they are more onto the bridge. And sometimes I also tell the people who are in a job at the frontier, I'm saying, Well, you're at the frontier of AI now, but I don't know five years from now. There will be new graduates, uh, you know, from undergraduate or from the PhD, which are more advanced than you. So you will need at that point to be able to do the bridge rather than to be the one at the frontier. Few will remain at the frontier forever. A lot of them will evolve.
0: So, Dan, I know you're very passionate about AI. You bring it up a lot in, in our group meetings and, and the like. What has been something that has surprised you about where this new tech is going?
1: I mean, just how fast and how good it is has been a total shock to me. Mm-hmm. I'm used to, well, I think we're all used to new technology coming out, tons of promise, and then being let down. It's that whole Gartner hype cycle. You see something, you think it's going to take over the world, and then it doesn't. And then you're like, oh, why did I care about that? And then, like, 10 years later, it comes back, seven years later. AI is just, I still find it magical when Mm. I go to ChatGPT and I ask a question and it comes up with an answer. And I'm just like, this is, and I know how it works. I feel like I know how it works. I've I've listened, I've watched enough courses and I've listened to really smart people explain it, but it still feels like magic. And so one of the reasons why I talk about it so much in our team is I can see where it starts eating away at roles Mm. or at maybe not at roles, but at least at processes Mm. that we've had and maybe processes we haven't liked doing, but at some point it starts eating in entire roles. And so something that you were a specialist in that required being really smart or really good at something, it turns out AI can do that. So an example of that would be, you know, reading spreadsheets and coming up with analysis, doing data analysis out of a spreadsheet, you can feed that into ChatGPT GPT and say, you know, what are the most important points out of this, and you're gonna get a pretty good answer. So, so some of my questions for Francesca were if one of the things you learn in business school is how to be great at looking at data, what do you do when AI is able to do that faster, or better, or a lot cheaper? And I thought her answer was great, which was, yeah, this is why you go to business school because you have to be someone who can skate on top of the changes that are going on underneath you. And for Francesca, that is empathy and leadership. If you can lead with empathy, meaning that you understand that people are dealing with problems and changes and and that they are not always going to agree, but you can kind of see the big picture and get them to just focus on something, you're going to be better off in a fast changing world an interesting perspective.
0: So the MBA isn't really teaching you now hard skills, it's teaching you soft skills. So the value of the MBA is how to be a soft skills person because a chat GBT is not. Yeah, because some of
1: these hard skills might just be taken up by the AI. Hmm. You can be a generalist.
0: I get like mild anxiety whenever we talk about AI. Yeah. Because I, I just like, like, look, I can't even like verbalize it. It's, 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 for someone who loves to write, yeah. I just the idea that there is a computer that can just do that.
1: I know it's crazy,
0: isn't it? But doesn't it, does it scare you, Dan?
1: Totally terrifies me. But the only way that I deal with it is trying to get really smart about it and trying yeah. to find ways forcing myself to use it. And then when you do that, you start realizing, well, I can use it to my advantage, I can yeah. use it to help do the stuff I don't like in writing. Or the stuff I'm not good at. So if I want to feed a data and I'm like, this would take me hours and hours to do. And if I can ask ChatGPT's help, that's awesome. There was a great story I read where a doctor was talking about how he uses Mm ChatGPT. And he says he sees ChatGPT as a really smart but sometimes hungover intern. Mm Mm-hmm. He's an emergency room doctor. And he said, when patients come to him and they're like, doctor, I need you to do this and that. And he's like, I'm trying to explain to them why what they're suggesting won't work. But I don't have the language for it because mm. I am approaching it as a clinician. Mm. And so I asked ChatGPT, like, can you help me explain why putting more IV fluids into your mom doesn't make sense here? And I need to be able to explain that in an empathetic way. This is the example he gives. And it comes out with something, he print it out, hands it to the family. They read it. They're like, I understand. And they had that printout with them. And he was like, this is like having this intern. was smart. And he said, now you have to think about the intern as being hung over sometimes because sometimes the answers are hallucinated. Mm -hmm. So that's, I thought it was a really great way to think about Mm -hmm. it. And that's helped me think about how do you, I feel better about AI when I'm Mm -hmm. like, this is a Mm -hmm. colleague who's got real potential.
0: Mm -hmm. I wonder if the way that we're feeling about AI, all of this apprehension is the way folks felt about like calculators, Yeah, you know, like, oh, if you start using calculators, no one's ever going to know how to do additions anymore. And it's. Yeah, it's just you just got to roll with it. It's here.
1: Yeah, like, what were monks freaking out about Gutenberg? You know, are they like, is it? We we need to go back and listen to some, some, uh, some Some (laughs) podcasts. Absolutely.
0: From the monks. Does the fast pace of change negate the usefulness then of higher education, considering that by the time you graduate, everything you've learned could have possibly changed? And I think of, um, some LinkedIn data that we have that, um, is something like the skills for many jobs have changed twenty-five percent since twenty fifteen. Yeah. Which is a pretty high number. And I think it's only gonna go higher as AI becomes more more ubiquitous.
1: First of all, I think we're gonna look back on this twenty-five percent change as being like an idyllic time of Remember uh, of when days. it was
0: only twenty-five percent? <laughs> exactly.
1: So, but I don't think that higher education is gonna be negated. I think that higher education is gonna change. Hmm. To prepare students for the workforce of tomorrow is going to mean understanding how to use tools differently and use them well. But I think you're still going to want to go and understand the basics, understand how things work. You're still going to need to be able to understand when something is a hallucination or when something doesn't pass the smell test. I think Mm -hmm. that's a big deal when you're like, yeah, I know. AI is telling me is doing this, but it doesn't make sense. Something's off. Mm -hmm. And understanding how to be able to dig in and understand what's gone wrong, that's still going to be essential. And then how to use these tools. And then to Francesca's point, how to lead people in times where the tools are available, all the answers are available. How do you get the most out of them? That's going to be a big deal. These soft skills, I think, are going to be really, really essential. We're going to take a quick break. And we're back.
0: Francesca talked about the importance of empathy on a pragmatic level and how it can make you a better business partner and a better leader. And it is so essential to success that it's actually part of Kellogg's curriculum. So let's take a listen to what
2: she had to say. The experience here among the students is very cooperative, It's very much about how you connect with each other, how you help each other. But I like to think this prepares you for a life of empathy, which is not only cooperating with your team or within your organization, it's also thinking of people outside of your organization. That's what we'd see sometimes in business, right? People who grow are successful and successful and successful within their bubble, and eventually the bubble burst because they never stopped and thought how am i perceived outside what's the impact how you know am, am i relevant to people outside do what do they think do i motivate people in the right way so we felt the empathy is the natural evolution of the cooperation And we have so many faculty here working on that teaching and doing research. And talking to them pretty early on, one of the things that really struck me and really stayed with me was what they explained to me was, most of the people think in terms of empathy as you either you have it or you don't have it. You are person with empathy or you're a person not empathy. But what they're saying is whatever you is your starting point, you can dial it up. It's a skill as others. Some may be more pro-naturally, but it's a muscle you exercise. And I never thought about it in this way, but I thought That is it, right? It is true. We have faculty that works at what makes people more empathetic, how to work on it. And uh, I have another faculty who said, people call it soft skills, but they're actually the harder to learn. And that is so true. And that's to me uh, really why talking about leadership with empathy made sense. It's something that can be taught. It's a muscle that then you have, and you will exercise it for the right. Rest of your life so one of the things that people uh, we have courses that teach this uh, this type of uh, things and would they make they encourage people to be vulnerable uh, in front of people that they haven't met that long ago and, and trying to reach out and explain where they're coming from with their points of vulnerability and then to listen to other points of vulnerability and see how people can come from completely different point of views, but actually th- there's a common, but if they didn't come from a place of vulnerability, they might have misunderstood each other, right? So that's one of the things that some of the courses we do are really about that, how you learn to have this courageous conversation, how you learn to be vulnerable. Sometimes it's in courses. Sometimes we have co-curricular, the the students have this uh, hear my story example, where people volunteer and they will tell their stories. And again, it's how you reach out. And other things we do, we encourage students to take leadership's role, whether it's the leadership of a club or preparing a conference, or simply, you know, our students take the leadership in like the orientation. They organize it. Or the day of Kellogg when admitted students come in. They have a leadership role, and they have then to deal with the fact that people have different ideas. People have, you know, may disagree on all we have to do, and they have to listen to everybody and try to arrive at a solution that makes people happy. Because it's a very experiential thing, right? We can teach these things, but then you have to make them do it. Dan, do you think corporations can truly
0: be empathetic? Aren't empathy and bottom lines mutually exclusive?
1: That's a great question. I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but one has to win, and I think the bottom line wins. Hmm. So. You have to be empathetic, but managers are not social workers, and Mm -hmm. this isn't about making sure that you understand how everyone is feeling at work and that everyone feels like they can talk about anything, and this is not what a workplace is. I remember years ago interviewing Amy Edmondson about her work on Teamsing and the idea of being vulnerable and authentic at work and being able to share your concerns, and she says managers often get this mistaken is that they have to let people talk about anything. She's like, that is not what we're trying to do. There are still rules about what you can talk about at work. There are workplace topics, but people have to feel comfortable talking about being vulnerable on those workplace topics. Mm. I think something similar is happening here with empathy, where you want to be empathetic towards your team and really understanding their point of view so that you can get to an outcome that's good for your business. So I think that's what makes it sound a little bit... uh, That sounds
0: less like empathy.
1: Yeah, and more like a little bit more grosser form of empathy, maybe. Yeah, or
0: just like being able to negotiate better.
1: Yeah, maybe it's persuasion. I don't know. But I mean, I think that's like the idea is, you know, it doesn't have to be a winner takes all. But if you can understand where people are coming from, if you think about business as being not just something that you win at every day, but something that you try to win at over the course of time then empathy plays a really big role. You want to make sure the people you're partnering with, for instance, have a good outcome also. It's not zero sum. And I think maybe empathy is about making sure that people feel good about things or at least feel like they weren't taken advantage of.
0: I struggle with this really? a little bit because I don't think that empathy, true empathy, should have a business objective behind it. So if it does, then I just I don't think that it's empathy. I don't necessarily think it's disgusting or something gross, but I just don't think that it is empathy Right. I think it is just understanding or that sort of thing, professionalism, hmm. sensitivity, but I don't think it's really empathy.
1: Do you think being purely empathetic would mean that you can never fire anybody?
0: There's a part of me that feels that way because you can always find a place for someone in the company. Right. Unless the company is going down. Yeah. You can say, Well, you're not good here, you know, I understand that your skills are whatever. Let's see if we can put you here. And that is what you would if think of if it was your daughter, your dad, whoever, that's how you would do it, right? You wouldn't fire them because you feel a closeness and you feel you care deeply about how they feel. So you would do what you can to mitigate any pain in their life. yeah, and you can do that as a corporation,
1: yeah, I think that you, I think you can do it as a corporation. I think there's different lenses that you can take here. Mm-hmm. One lens you could take is the long arc of our careers. And you could say, well, somebody, Getting fired from one place doesn't mean they don't get hired or in a better position somewhere else. Maybe they were unhappy in their job. Maybe they weren't performing because they really hated their job, but they couldn't find a way out. And so you're helping them.
0: So, Oh, Dan, Roth.
1: <laughs> okay, so that's okay. one argument. <laughs> Let me quickly move on to number two <laughs> before you poke all the holes in it that it deserves to get poked into. Um Number two would be if you think about the empathy of the team, empathy Mm. for your team. What if you look at you have a team and you're trying to have a high performing team and there's one person who is not performing. If you want to be empathetic towards that person, you say, I'm going to keep you on. I'm going to keep helping you in this position. But the rest of the team suffers because they've got someone who's not doing their job. What role do you have to be empathetic towards the team or towards the other teams that depend on that team? Mm -hmm. Couldn't you take that lens also of saying, I'm going to be in the larger picture, empathetic, but it might not be super empathetic towards an individual. Hmm. You buying any of this?
0: Well, I think that in that position, you would just move the individual... To a different team.
1: Make it someone else's problem.
0: Make it someone else's problem. Or you just have them work on a project that's different. Or if they're like, listen, you're you're really not doing well in any of these teams who put you in. Let's sit down and talk about whether you're happy at this job. Yeah, Whether this is the right career path for you. And that's, and that's I would say, the empathy part. But I don't come to work wanting my manager to be my therapist yeah. or expecting that of my manager. And I wonder if this thing of empathy, is that where this is trending? Do managers have to sit and truly deeply care about all of their employees?
1: I think that is a great question for Francesca. And we <laughs> need to get her back here now to understand exactly what it takes.
0: I would love to take this this course. I would love to see what this course on empathy is at, at, at Kellogg.
1: So let's follow this up by getting Francesca or someone on her faculty come in and talk about can companies actually be empathetic what does it take? I would we're love gonna, that. All right, we are going yeah. to do that. <laughs> and I would love to hear from everyone listening on whether you think, let's take Nina's question as something we're going to dig into. Can companies be empathetic? Is it important for managers to be empathetic? Or does this fundamentally not work in a corporation? You can let us know on LinkedIn using the hashtag ThisIsWorking.
0: And please share this podcast episode with a friend and review it. It helps new listeners find us. If you'd like to hear the full conversation between Dan and Francesca, check the show notes. We'll link to it there. This is Working is a LinkedIn editorial production. Our production team includes Sarah Storm, Steven Valdivia, Asaf Gidron, Taisha Henry, Andres Cordona, and Lolia Briggs. Joe DeGiorgi mixes our show. Enrique Montalvo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Our head of original programming is Courtney Coop. And I'm Nina Melendez, senior producer.
1: And I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Be well and stay curious.